BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, welcome to the Blonde Files podcast. I'm your host, Arielle Laurie, and I'm here to talk all things wellness. From how to achieve optimal health and well-being to the best beauty tips and everything in between, no topic is off limits. I know there is so much information out there, so I'm here to help you navigate it all and live your best life. Thanks for listening. Let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. I hope everybody is feeling good, feeling positive and hopeful coming into 2021. I personally am feeling pretty good. I had the most boring New Year's Eve. I think I was asleep by like 9.30 or 10, but, you know, very on brand for 2020. But yeah, feeling pretty good, cautiously optimistic at this point, three days as I record this into the year. And yeah, at least we're all safe and healthy and we've made it this far, right? So I have a fascinating episode today. I'm talking to Dr. Uma Naidu. She is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and she founded and directs the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the United States. She is the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Mass General Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH. It's a big hospital out there on the East Coast. And she is also the director of nutritional psychiatry at Mass General Hospital Academy while serving on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. She has a new book called This Is Your Brain on Food that is amazing. It combines her knowledge of psychiatry with her knowledge about food, and she draws from over 500 different studies to explain how different nutrients affect our moods, our bodies, and various issues like depression, anxiety, fatigue, low sex drive, OCD, PTSD, and more. She also talks a lot about the gut-brain connection, or as she calls it, the gut-brain romance. And we talk about all of that in this episode and more. So enjoy. So welcome, Dr. Naidu. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Ariel. I, I really appreciate the invitation. I've been reading your book and I shared it on Instagram and I'm sure a lot of the audience already has it, but you have a new book. This is your brain on food. It is amazing. It's such a great resource for anybody who wants to learn about nutrition, um, how it affects your mind, your body, your cognitive function, mood, all of that. So to start out, I would love to just hear about your career trajectory, the evolution of how you went from psychiatry to where you are now with nutritional psychiatry. 
Um, thanks. So, so, you know, it's interesting because it really began in my childhood. Uh, my relationship with food uh, was built around family, a very large South Asian family that I grew up in, many generations, large family meals, and a focus on good eating and healthy eating, but also joy around food and nurturance. So I, I really stems from way back when. But also in my family, there were a large number of allopathic doctors and a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners. So there was the sense of healthy eating, um, as well as just learning something about food. And I brought that with me because in a large South Asian family, also many cooks in the kitchen, you know, grandmothers, aunts, older cousins, mothers. Um, so really, there wasn't much that I needed to do except hang around and taste food, but it was always really around food. But my mom is a double-boarded physician and she recognized that I loved science. So she taught me how to bake and measure. So I, I could bake, but I really didn't come to cooking until later. And when I discovered cooking, it was as I was studying in Boston. And I uh, realized that when, when I went to prepare whichever meal it was, that that was for me a very mindful time and a, a, almost a respite from the rest of my busy day studying. And I found that I was looking forward to it more, even though I was, you know, testing recipes that I'd watched my mom prepare at home or using her spice blends. And it not only brought me a sense of comfort in terms of, you know, having moved far away from where I was born, but also I realized that this was a great time in, in my day to decompress. And my interest and love for cooking really developed in a very real way. And I was, you know, watching Julia Childs on television because I really couldn't afford, afford cable TV in those days. And she was on public televisions. And that helped me gain confidence as a young cook, really, that, you know, you could make mistakes and fix them. And all of this happened at the same time and without much planning. But also, I think that what I would uh, think looking back is that I followed my instinct. I loved cooking. I did more of it. I, I loved learning about nutrition. I wanted to study more. And I understood there was a real gap in medical school. And that brought this forward into when I began to see patients in mental health and in psychiatry, I really wanted to ask them more. Because also that Hindu background came with mindfulness and meditation, learning that as a child, yoga practice and that type of thing, and really looking at health in a very holistic way. And I guess automatically that kicked in when I began to see patients. And I, I started to ask about what they were eating. And after being yelled at by a patient when I was very early in my career, and being able to take that situation and turn it around by providing information to him that was then valuable about what he was drinking and eating, really helped me understand how valuable it was, what a powerful tool nutrition was to someone who was, whether they were struggling with emotional well-being or other things, how powerful it could be as a tool because it was a tool that they could employ, they could use. And I had learned the power of a prescription pad. But I think that what was very appealing about sharing nutritional strategies with someone was that they could, they could feel empowered and that they could make choices. And it blended into my career in a more longitudinal way. My trip to culinary school was really a, a trip of passion and, and wanting to follow something that I love to do. I didn't know that it would fit into my career in a particular way. 
And I was very blessed that it did come together in, in the way that my career came together in forming the clinic that I work in in Randolph Mass General. And that's really how it came to be, putting those components together in a recipe that was somewhat unplanned and uh, for which I feel very grateful. New Year's are all about fresh starts, right? And there's no way to be fresher, literally, than with Native deodorant. So I've been using Native for years since I worked with them in, I think it was 2018. And since then, I have just never deviated. Native has always worked for me. It smells amazing. It doesn't irritate my skin. So, you know, I've just never had any reason to use anything else. Native deodorants are aluminum-free. They use ingredients like coconut oil and shea butter. And a big plus is that none of their products are used on animals and almost everything is vegan. So you can choose from over 10 scents, including coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, lavender and rose. I usually use the citrus and herbal musk, but I just ran out. So now I'm using cucumber mint, which is also amazing. They're all really amazing. I'm telling you guys this stuff works. So make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash blonde. That's N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O dot com slash B-L-O-N-D-E or use the promo code blonde at checkout and you can get 20% off your first order. So again, that's nativedeo.com, N-A-T-I-V-E-D-E-O.com slash blonde, B-L-O-N-D-E or promo code blonde at checkout for 20% off your first order. I was reading in your book, you were talking about traditional psychiatry and you said that, you know, psychiatry, you look for symptoms and then you make a diagnosis. And often that diagnosis comes with the prescription of medication, right? But oftentimes people come in with depression or anxiety that's very real, but it doesn't meet the criteria for Mm -hmm. medication. Yes. In traditional psychiatry, how do you fill that? How would one fill that gap um, without lifestyle modification? Um, or something like what you do? That's actually a great question because I think that uh, when you're seeing a psychiatrist in a hospital or clinic, much of that is insurance driven by time, by coding, by billing. And it's the doctors are really under a lot of pressure to make a decision and and see the next client. It's Mm -hmm. not that they're trying in any way to not give you the time you deserve. There's this for that issue, but there's also the issue of how the diagnostic and statistical manual DSM-5 is set up. You know, there's no tissue diagnosis in in psychiatry. So there's no blood culture, blood test, brain biopsy, uh, or other culture that you can do. If you have an infection and you have a cough, you know, they'll culture the sputum. They might do a blood culture if it's a severe infection and you're hospitalized. But we don't have that in mental health. We don't have that in psychiatry. And that really clinically, as uh, as someone who's been a practicing clinician for a couple of decades now, what I see a lot of is in those individuals who don't quite meet uh, the diagnosis of those criteria from DSM-5, but are still suffering or struggling on some level. And I think bringing it back to the point about the way that doctors are expected to use appointments when you see, you see someone in a clinic or a hospital, the tendency is let me pull out my prescription pad and give you something to try. And I feel like 
individuals who think, well, you don't need a medication may then refer you to different forms of therapy, all of which I support wholeheartedly because I really think that if you are taking medication therapies and the different types that we do in psychiatry and in mental health are worthwhile. But I feel that that gap that you pointed to is exactly what is missing in our approach to mental health. There isn't really a holistic or integrated approach. And I think that lifestyle changes, individuals who are not suffering to the point that they can function, if you can function, but you're not feeling good, if COVID has pushed your mood in the wrong direction, has made you more anxious, it might be that you can actually do these lifestyle changes to fill that gap if it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I see that as not really existing in traditional practice right now. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it will will change. I'm not sure, but really, it, it comes from the clinician being willing to look at the other components, and sometimes that's driven by not having enough time as well. Right. So I'm curious how you work with your patients if somebody comes in to see you and they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed. Um, obviously, you talk about different cases in the book, and so I'd like to hear just kind of how you look at somebody holistically and how you might treat them, understanding that it's very individualized. And then the second part to that question is you said one of your your earliest success stories was a referral from an infectious disease specialist. And I would love mm-hmm. to hear a little more about that if you can share what that case was like. Sure. Um, you know, so, so a couple of things. I think that our microbiome is really like a thumbprint, right? So each each case has now, my clinic over the years of running it, has become so much more personalized because of understanding more research and knowing that individuals have different responses. So at that point, I the way that I employ a holistic model is I really spend the first visit with, with someone finding out as much as I can beyond the traditional good and comprehensive history that a doctor or a psychiatrist would take. So I literally want to know what they're doing. Not only, it's not just a food log, it's what they're doing, how are they sleeping? Uh, what's affecting their sleep? You know, do they have a pet? Um, it could be as important as, or, or someone might think it's irrelevant, but you know, are you moving? Are you doing any exercise? Are you doing a dance class? Are you walking a dog? So I, I find out as much as I can, I'm kind of inquisitive and, and curious at the same time to find out about someone. A lot of the referrals I have now are really for nutritional psychiatrists. So people come in with a good sense of what they're looking for. And sometimes the decision tree for me is, are you, you know, are you doing okay? You still have symptoms that we can help with, but can you manage the rest of your life? And I'll give you an example. I evaluated someone in the last six months that had severe symptoms of OCD that had been lifelong and had taken medications back and forth. But when I truly evaluated the symptoms, I have to say that she didn't necessarily like the conclusion of what I said, but I said, you know, I'm going to give you all my recommendations, but I am also going to tell you as someone who prescribes medication, I wasn't a prescriber, she was seeing someone else, that I think you should should take a little bit of the medication and do the lifestyle strategies because your symptoms of OCD have you locked in. They have you afraid to do certain things. They have you not being able to enjoy aspects of your life, even with COVID restrictions. And you know, I, I, I had to be very honest and transparent about it. And I said, I think you need to do a little bit of both to make this what you need. And yet there are other people who have, others who may come in with symptoms of OCD who have milder symptoms. And they actually could engage in the nutritional strategies to help alleviate 
some of that so that they continue to function. Will all of the symptoms go away? Maybe not, but they could be lessened to the point that the person can really feel they can they are functioning better. So it gets it gets complicated. And and sometimes I, I go back and say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I think you need to do some of this because there are these reasons that you're not functioning. And that's where clinical training and knowing the psychiatric diagnosis and having some clinical experience becomes quite important. When it comes to um, specific patients and how they've been how they've been referred, I was interested that you know the the, the the clinician who referred that particular individual had the wherewithal to realize that the gut microbiome research is really burgeoning and has really increased over time, and she figured that the client had actually read about me and uh, and had asked you know, had said, I really think there's something wrong here. I, I want to get help from this doctor. Can you arrange it? And so I give both both people credit for that because the doctor could have said, I think that's, you know, I think that's not going to work for you and you really shouldn't do that. But she didn't, you know, she contacted me. She had a conversation with me, which was very helpful. And I also give the, the client credit because she had read about something and she said, oh, there's this gut microbiome and I want to know more. And I think it was, you know, it ended up being very meaningful for everyone because that is, to go back to an earlier question for you, that's really how change starts to get implemented in the medical system, isn't it? That people are open, willing to look at other ways to help uh, help patients, willing to refer to another colleague and get some input on that. And it certainly was very important uh, for me. If you're staring at a screen all day or looking at your phone constantly or waking up and scrolling Instagram or watching TV before bed, which let's be real, I'm sure a lot of us are doing. I mean, that's life today. I do it too. But if you're doing that, you could be welcoming unnecessary stress, anxiety, discomfort like eye strain, headaches, insomnia, and more into your life. So that's right. Blue light is the culprit here and it is everywhere, unfortunately. That's why I use Blue Blocks, blue light blocking glasses. I've been using these for about a year now. I've been talking about them for about a year now. So if you've been listening, I'm sure you're familiar and hopefully you already have a pair. But that's what I've been using to protect myself from all of this. So Blue Blocks are the ultimate blue light blocking glasses. They are created in optics laboratory conditions. They block out blue light and unlike other other trendy companies, they have a real understanding of how light impacts health. If you want to learn more about this, you can go back to my episode with Andy Mant. He is one of the founders. It was last winter, so you can go go scroll back and find that. I love Blue Blocks because they have really high quality lenses. They have them for daytime, for nighttime, for color therapy. It's all exactly in line with the suggested peer-reviewed academic literature. And they have over 20 stylish frames to choose from. And they come in prescription, non-prescription, and readers. Additionally, they can turn almost any pair of your glasses into custom blue blockers. They just take your existing glasses and fit them with their lenses. So I've been using these. Like I said, I love the crystal style. People always DM me and ask, which I like. That's my favorite. I have a few others. And honestly, they're all just really good looking. So if you go on there, you will for sure find something that you like. So if you want to get your energy back, sleep better and block out the unhealthy effects of blue light, go to to Blue Blocks today and get free shipping worldwide 
and 15% off with the code BLONDE, B-L-O-N-D-E. Or you can go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash blonde, B-L-O-N-D-E. Now back to the show. So let's talk about, as you call it, the gut-brain romance. Gut health is just so such a hot topic um, in the last few years, particularly with my audience. You know, I started my account almost, I guess, four years ago, and I was having a lot of gut issues, and I, I've always shared very openly about them. And I was very overwhelmed by the response that it seems like everybody is dealing with it. And it always kind of... It just makes me wonder why it's so prevalent right now. Maybe is it just that we're more aware of it and learning more about it? And so people are more cognizant of what's happening. And for people who don't know, maybe can you just, in layman's terms, talk about how they are connected? Absolutely. Um, You know, until about 15 to 16 years ago, let's just say in the last two decades, that's really when the gut microbiome research burgeoned. So if people weren't hearing much about it. It was because it wasn't in scientific journals and the research was still being done, um, etc. So so I think that, you know, the way it starts for people and where it's important in mental health is that the cliche, you know, you are what you eat becomes much more relevant. The gut and the brain may seem far apart in the body for most people, but they are actually originating in the embryo from the same cells. And that becomes really important to understand their functioning later in life. So they, they, they grow into to different parts of our body, but the gut and the brain are connected. They're then connected by the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, which connects the gut to the brain and the brain to the gut. And that acts like a two-way superhighway, uh, allowing for 24-7 channeling of information, really chemical messages back and forth throughout, the, throughout time. So there's that connection. And then, you know, the, the 39 odd trillion bacteria, but really microbes, because there are about five different types that live in the gut. And they, um, you know, they are impacted by food. But what's important to know is that, you know, people are often prescribed medications such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Zoloft and many others. But the serotonin receptors, more than 95% are in the gut. So that's, that's really helpful for people to know. The fourth factor that I think is super important about the gut-brain axis is that a very large component of our immune system is in the gut. So how we eat as far better immunity becomes important as well. It becomes, better, it becomes important for our mental health and it becomes important for our immunity as well as our physical health. But, you know, my focus it tends to be on the, on the, um, on the mental health. Mm-hmm. So your book covers 10 different conditions and, you know, how nutrition affects those conditions in good ways and in bad ways, right? So how to use nutrition to treat those conditions and how you might kind of lifestyle your way into that. So we can't go over all of them, unfortunately, but there are some big ones and a lot of people sent in questions, particularly around anxiety. Mm -hmm. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants to know. What do I eat for anxiety? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that what's super important here is that uh, we start off off with things that we should be concerned to avoid. 
And the reason I say that is because so much of our, uh, so much of what we are often doing, I think you've heard the expression that you uh, cannot exercise out of a bad diet. Well, in a similar way, you know, you, you really can't sort of eat your way happy. So in other words, what do I mean by that? You know, eating poorly and taking supplements that doesn't help us. Um, and I think that it becomes really important for people to truly know the things to avoid first so they can they can start to be wary of them. Why do I say that? Because there are individuals who have said, you know, I'm trying to cut back on sugar. I know it's bad for me. I know it worsens, uh, worsens how I feel. But they, they go from having a lot of sugar, say candy bars, maybe that's the person the thing that the person is eating and they start to drink or eat foods that have artificial sweetness and the foods are labeled sugar-free. So they're thinking, this is great. I can, you know, come off sugar, but unfortunately artificial sweetness worsen anxiety. So if we were to go through it very quickly, highly processed and ultra processed foods worsen symptoms of anxiety, trans fats, um, uh, you know, and processed vegetable oils are problematic for anxiety the more um, high glycemic index carbohydrates can basically not help anxiety. Refined and added sugars, so not necessarily from fruit, which is a natural sugar, certain amounts of coffee, so less than 400 milligrams a day is what's suggested. And if you are sensitive to coffee, then coming, cutting, it, cutting back on it and coming off of coffee may be important. You know, having a moderate level of alcohol intake and in certain cases, also um, watching the amount of gluten that you eat, if in fact uh, it's quite possible gluten may be driving your symptoms of anxiety. And why is that important? Because you know gluten has been shown in studies to worsen in certain individuals' sort of level of anxiety, and and therefore I think that people need to not necessarily just go out and eliminate it off you know, immediately really assess their body intelligence, see how they feel, see if they start to, you know, take out the foods that I just mentioned. Maybe they were hidden in things that you don't realize. Uh, for example, processed vegetable oils are used in many fast food restaurants because it's less expensive, but that could be setting up inflammation in your body because of the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. So it's those little things that someone, for example, told me that they were buying a healthier version of ketchup because they know that I talk about the added sugars and savory foods like ketchup and bought a healthy ketchup and then found, was reading the label and found that ingredient as an artificial sweetener, which was listed in my book and realized, you know, I'm moving to this healthy ketchup, but actually it contains ingredients that are worsening my anxiety. So it becomes just us being observant, reading food labels and understanding. Now, what are the things you can add, add in that can help you? Well, you can start in with things like adding fiber-rich foods. Fiber, why do I say that? Because fiber-rich foods break down more slowly in your body. Therefore, there's less of an uh, insulin spike when you have them. So if you have a sugary donut or um, something like that, you may have what people will experience as a sugar crash or you know feel, feel okay when you have it because you liked it or you enjoyed it and then not feel so great afterwards. When you eat more filling and fiber-rich foods, 
there's an evening out of your blood sugar level. So there's less of those insulin spikes, if not at all. And the food is broken down and digested in your body. And you just don't have those ups and downs, which can actually make people feel quite uncomfortable. So, uh, you know, we, we can't get fiber from animal and seafood protein, but adding in veggies and, you know, uh, servings, one to two servings of low glycemic fruit like berries um, are really good. So, you know, load up on the broccoli, the Brussels sprouts, the, the cauliflower, and then, um, you know, things like nuts and seeds have a good amount of fiber in them. So, so add those in. Mm-hmm. You know, so so think healthy salad. Think lots lots of colors and lots of seeds and crunch and 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 fiber rich foods. And then another category of food is the omega threes. So things like fatty fish, which are things like salmon, sardines, and but then plant based sources such as algae, flax seeds, chia seeds are also sources of omega threes to remember. And then I go to uh, vitamin D rich foods, a very important category, because although we get more than 80% of our vitamin D from sunshine, there are also vitamin D rich foods that can help anxiety, magnesium rich foods to help anxiety. Easy ones are chickpeas, pumpkin seeds, avocado, uh, black beans, and then adding back uh, pre and probiotic foods also become important because the pre and probiotic foods uh, and probiotic foods are usually what would we often see as fermented foods, those actually really help gut the, the gut thrive and those gut microbes thrive. So adding those in in the form of um, a probiotic-rich yogurt, dairy or non-dairy, unsweetened or prebiotic foods, uh, easy to remember the Allium family, there's, there's many of them, but mm-hmm. things like uh, garlic, onions, leeks um, are ways to really enrich the uh, enrich the diet that those gut microbes need to thrive. And by doing that, you're really um, taking care, you're fortifying your mental health by doing that. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of the categories that I go through uh, with people of things to, to start embracing. And also spices, um, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper really has hit the high notes on a lot of conditions, including anxiety. So I would add that to a tea, a soup, a smoothie if you don't cook and try to add that in. The black pepper makes the curcumin and turmeric more bioactive and bioavailable to your brain and body. So just add a little pinch of black pepper in. When it comes to sugars, this is another question that I get. Anytime I have a doctor on any any expert (laughs) talking about nutrition and people ask this of you today as well, when it comes to sugar, is a sugar, a sugar, a sugar, a sugar? Is coconut sugar better Mm -hmm. than brown sugar? Is maple syrup better than either of those? I mean, is it all the same? Obviously, all of it in moderation, but is there a difference of how they affect your body and your mental health? Sure. So I think that's a great question. I sort of look at sugars in this way. They're sort of the added and refined sugars that I'm most concerned about that we don't realize on foods because mm-hmm. they're probably close to 250 other names for sugar now that are on food labels. So it, it's quite often that people don't even realize they're taking in sugar mm-hmm. and something that they eat, which they might perceive to be otherwise healthy or have a label that suggests to them it might be healthy. I think of a good way to get in uh, natural sources of sugar uh, through really taking in to eating fruit, but eating it in moderation. So there's certain circumstances. If someone is overweight, struggling with that as one of their mental health conditions, as say part of depression, maybe they've taken a medication or maybe they've had symptoms of depression and really been eating to 
feel emotionally better, but actually then gained weight. You know, the idea wouldn't be let's eat a ton of fruit, but you can always eat lower glycemic fruit like berries, strawberries, and blueberries being my favorite and eat small portions. So one to utmost, up, you know, most being three servings, but one to two is what I usually guide people to do. And the way that I also like people to use fruit, as you have seen in my book, is to really t- get that edge off a sweet tooth by including fruit in their diet, either in using whole fruit to make desserts or some kind of snack that you'd like, maybe you would like something sweet after dinner or lunch. So think of fruit that way. The reality about the type of sugar is that it, it's a natural sugar. It is low sugar, so you want to think about getting it from a natural source, and also the fact that the fiber, the vitamins, the phytochemicals and nutrients in that piece of fruit, you are also getting. So think about a little plump blueberry and realize you're getting so much more than if you, you know, you were having some type of other sugar. But the rest of the sugars, they all break down to sugar. Mm -hmm. So um, the one that I will say drizzle in a recipe is a little bit of honey Mm -hmm. because honey has many other health benefits. So I feel it's one that I've come to terms with as add a drizzle of honey to say the chocolate avocado mousse that we make Mm -hmm. and um, add a drizzle to say you want the topping on your oatmeal. Although I'm going to say use cinnamon because cinnamon can sweeten too. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'd like to, to suggest to people use low glycemic fruit. If you don't have an issue with um, some extra pounds, then expand to other fruit because those those good for you. Lower glycemic fruit may be healthier just because you won't have the added uh, sugar. Split up when you eat your fruit, use it, eat your servings throughout the day and try to eat your fruit, not drink your fruit. Because I, you know, I say eat your blueberries, don't drink them because you, you lose some of the, the, the fiber in that as well as nutrients. And in terms of the other sugars, I'm sorry, they are sugar, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. honey, but honey has a ton of other health benefits too. I'm just waiting for someone to tell me that I can just eat coconut sugar <laughs> forever in pounds and it won't affect me at all. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think, I think we all wish that that was the case. But, um, yeah. Okay. So another, another issue that you talk about that I think a lot of people are dealing with right now is insomnia, fatigue, energy issues. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we treat that with our nutrition? So, you know, with with insomnia, one of the things that I start with is sleep hygiene, because especially in COVID times with people working from home, many different sort of age groups of the family being home together, homeschooling, and the amount of stress that people are just generally experiencing, each person's situation may be different. Someone may be on their own and isolated from their family through COVID. I mean, it's, everyone is different. So starting with sleep hygiene is important. And, and I really personally feel that, you know, getting ready for bed, paying attention to when you drink alcohol, if you drink it, when you drink coffee, if you drink it, paying attention to hydration, making sure you're adequately hydrated throughout the day is really important. So all of that and also then thinking about, you know, when do you shut off your phone or when do you, when do you leave your phone in another room? Um, when, when do you shut off the television? You know, is your, your bedroom where you sleep, uh, you know, get restful for the night versus, versus kind of eating your pizza in bed or, you know, habits that may have, may have developed during COVID because it's such an unusual time. So pay attention to those things because they do, they do affect the brain. They do affect how you get ready and how your body gets ready to, to rest. Alcohol 
you know, if you're having a glass of wine or two to help you sleep during COVID, that's probably disrupting your sleep architecture. So even though it might put you to sleep, it's not the best choice for you. And people don't often realize that because they feel a calming feeling or they feel a sleepy feeling and they feel ready for bed. But over time, it affects your sleep architecture. But things that you can do, there's um, a good amount of evidence for a tart cherry juice that you can make from tart cherries. You can actually get tart cherries, they exist. Um, And you can make a little bit of juice. And if you are buying such a juice, just make sure that, that you're looking at the sugar content in that, but it actually helps people go to sleep. And I've had people try it uh, and buy some healthy versions and really use, drink a little bit of it and really sleep much better. So that's a tip that came out um, in, in the research. And the other, the other tip I have around, um, around insomnia is, is to flip your breakfast. And the reason is that there are several breakfast foods which have melatonin, um, things like good quality oats, eggs certain forms of good quality dairy, uh, certain vegetables have melatonin. So think about, you know, making an omelet and having it at dinner time. Mm. Um, And, you know, uh, if you eat dairy, you can add in some milk. Grass-fed milk is what I generally prefer if if you are able to get it and then add in, you know, asparagus and broccoli. And you actually have something with some with several melatonin-rich foods in it. And there's a list of many other foods with melatonin in my book. But just think about putting those foods into your dinner time, time frame and sort of getting your your body ready for sleep and then watching for hidden sources of caffeine. Um, there are several over-the-counter headache pills which have caffeine. So, you know, beware of that because you may you may be taking that and not realize it has a good amount of caffeine in it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's finding those hidden sources and making sure you are kind of winding down uh, to rest at night. Mm-hmm. Um, Another question that I get all the time that I wanted to ask you myself as well is about breakfast. I think it's a meal Mm -hmm. that so many people struggle with because kind of traditional breakfast is either very carb loaded and sugary Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's, it involves animal protein and, you know, a lot of people now are vegan, vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it feels like the options are kind of limited in, in more traditional breakfasts. I've had people on who said, well, you don't have to eat breakfast food for breakfast. First of all, you know, that's a mindset that we can break. Um, But I I think, you know, people are just kind of at a loss as to what to do. So what's, what's Mm -hmm. a good breakfast in your mind or what do you eat for breakfast? Sure. I think with breakfast, it's all about planning because people, even if they're working from home, they tend to be busy. And so I, I do as much meal planning as I can because, uh, because I'm busy. And one of my favorite go-tos is chia pudding, mm. uh, something I can prep on the weekend because that happens to be a, a, a chunk of time when I can do meal prep for me. So someone else, it could be a Wednesday. You know, it, it's just dependent on your work schedule or, or, or your, your life schedule. Chia pudding is simple and I, I like it because it has coconut milk and chia seeds. Chia seeds are super rich in fiber and protein and they are a great source of short chain omega-3. So I know they're good brain food for me. So I make uh, I prep some ahead in small containers and I therefore have something ready. If I don't happen to eat it for breakfast, I have something else. I can also have that as a snack. Mm-hmm. And then I top it with uh, my favorite toppings are things like a little bit of chopped hazelnuts and macadamia just for the crunch, or I put some blueberries or a little bit of both. Uh, I might add a sprinkle of cinnamon. So I, I, I make it interesting for myself, but I make it interesting with easy things that are in my fridge, on my counter, on my spice cabinet to make. And I think that that just takes, 
it takes the stress out of breakfast because you have something ready. You make, maybe you have a cup of coffee like I do or a glass of water, whatever it is, and you have it ready. So that, or, you know, some people do oatmeal, they do overnight oats and then they make it for the week or for a few days at a time and add their toppings or maybe a nut milk to it. I like things like that that are easy that I can go to. If, if people consume eggs, um, I teach them to make little frittatas that they can in a, in a cupcake pan. Mm-hmm. So on a Sunday, bake them up and you can actually freeze them individually and you're good for a couple of weeks if, if you want that as either a snack or um, you want to eat one or two for breakfast. And I tell people to put loads of veggies in, put your spinach, put your leftover roasted veggies, you know, add some spices that you like and make it interesting. And all you have to do is, you know, uh, you have it ready, frozen, and you, and you have those prepped. I think that that, for me, makes a very big difference in terms of getting something in. A lot of people also doing intermittent fasting, That's that becomes slightly different. They might want to eat different things or eat at a different time. But for those people who are finding it hard to get breakfast in, I would say, number one, do some meal prep. Decide on a few things that you like for breakfast. Um, maybe for someone else, it's a sprouted uh, piece of uh, whole grain bread and avocado, you know, so great avocado toast. Then just have your avocado in the fridge peeled and ready or have it whole so that it doesn't go kind of gets darkened or blackened and toast up your bread and, and, and make it easy for yourself so that it's almost like a no-brainer in the morning that you don't have to think through that option. And those are, for me, what I find the most helpful and getting in other people like a smoothie or something like that, you can actually put the ingredients for your smoothie in a glass jar the night before, pop it into your blender in the morning. Some people even leave it in the blender container, seal it up, but then just blend it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that way, again, you don't have to think through those steps when you're busy or you're rushing or you have a tendency to forget breakfast. <laughs> those are great ideas. So something that um, I wanted to talk to you about around all of this is how do we how do we remain cognizant about what we're eating, how we're feeling, how what we're eating is going to make us feel, but also stay out of the the more orthorexic end of the spectrum because it's very mm-hmm. easy, you know. There's kind of a fine line. Mm-hmm. So how do do you have any tips for that? Absolutely. I think I think that, you know, embracing a healthy diet is something any one of us can do, um, including myself. I mean, we can always up our game, but I think it becomes a concerning or problematic where you're fine-tuning things to the point that you're either starting to exclude entire food groups if you don't have a food, a food allergy or food intolerance. So, so if you're sort of going down the path of, I cannot eat this food group, I only can eat X number of calories, I can only eat, you know, if you're becoming too rigid mm-hmm. um, and structured around what you're doing, to the extent that uh, it's starting to affect just your enjoyment of food, how much you're eating, how much of a variety of foods you're eating. Because a variety of fruit and vegetables, for example, the beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains that I mentioned earlier that help bring fiber, also bringing variety and biodiversity to your gut microbes. So if you suddenly decide, I'm not eating anything green, I'm, I'm just making that up, I'm not eating this, I'm not, you know, it, it actually changes what happens to your gut. And I would say if you are trying to be healthy, but you've noticed in yourself or, or your family, 
is saying, someone, someone you love is saying, or a friend is saying, you know, you, we can't take you somewhere, can't go somewhere because you just cannot eat, you know, all foods that are green mm-hmm. um, or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. If, some, if people that love you or, or know you are saying something back, then maybe just reflect on what you're doing because that starts to become unhealthy for you where you start to exclude things or start to be so rigid about your diet that it's not helping you nourish your body. You know, for me, food has always meant nurturance and joy and, and something that, um, and that's why I, I don't people I don't feel that people should have to eat non-tasty food if they are trying to be healthy. Right. And I really care that recipes are delicious for people to enjoy, but they can still be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, because if not, you, you don't eat it. You know, you, yeah. you don't want to eat eat the food. So I think that those things become important. And I think it's a really good question because some people get too um, almost uh, fixed fixed on on, on mm-hmm. habits which don't end up being best the best for them. Absolutely. Well, there are plenty of other conditions in your book. You cover PTSD, OCD, depression, what else, libido. There are so many. So everybody make sure to go pick up the book. And where can everybody find you? So they can find me in two places. Find me on social media. We always share information on Instagram, which is at D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O, which is at Dr. Uma Naidu. And go to my website. Please subscribe and you'll get our newsletters and get information about what I'm up to. That's umanaidumd.com. And you can also buy the book there or support your local bookseller or uh, Amazon, wherever you prefer to get it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much, Ariel. It was lovely to talk to you. You too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you liked it, and if you like the show in general, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It goes a long way, and it's actually the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more about each episode, you can head over to the Blonde Files podcast on Instagram. I'm always posting about each episode there or over on my personal page at Ariel Laurie.